Welcome back to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Program at Fort Hay State University. Here at Victor E. History, we highlight student and faculty research and notable alumni. I'm Holly Marquis. I'm a lecturer in the History Program, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Susan Elliott, a junior history major at FHSU, and she's here to talk with me about Kansas Methodists and the KKK. Susan, welcome to Victor E. Thank you, Professor, for inviting me to join you today. Would you please start off by telling us a little about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a more experienced in life online student at Fort Hayes, uh, beginning my second semester in the history program. I transferred a liberal arts associate's degree from Johnson County Community College, and I live in Overland Park, Kansas, and work as full-time administrative support staff at JCCC. And this is a paper that you wrote for Historical Methods with Dr. Atkins. How did you come across this topic? Well, actually, I kind of backed into the topic. I read a New York Times article about Timothy Egan's recent book on the 1920s Ku Klux Klan in Indiana. And because I'm especially interested in Kansas State and Midwest regional history, I wondered about the KK presence in Kansas and began researching from uh, that narrower point. You know, when I think about the KKK, even the KKK in Kansas, my first thought isn't Methodists. And same when I think about Methodists, the KKK isn't the first thing that comes to mind. So I'm interested to learn more about that. So let's set some context. What KKK era are you focusing on? I focused on the resurgent, the revived KKK of the 1920s, not the Reconstruction post-Civil War era Klan. While searching for secondary sources on the Klan in Kansas, I came across archivist and historian Tim Reeves' data-heavy book on KKK activity in the state's largest city, which is Kansas City, and read his conclusion that the typical KKK member in Kansas City was Methodist, Mason, and Republican. So since Methodism was the largest Protestant denomination in Kansas in the early 1900s, I began researching the intersection and interactions between the two groups, the KKK and the Methodists. What does the Methodist Church look like in Kansas at this time? Sure. As I mentioned, Methodism was the largest Protestant denomination in Kansas in the early 1900s, which was my research time frame. There were Methodist churches in nearly every community in the state. And to me, that presence represented or should represent influence. Another factor which guided my topic choice was that historically, there was a fair amount of animosity and tension between Kansas Methodism and Kansas Catholicism. Uh, Additionally, some of the first missionaries in the state after enactment of the Kansas-Nebraska Act were pro-slavery Methodists. During the mid-1800s, the Methodist denomination experienced splits into conferences based on pro- and anti-slavery beliefs. Because the Klan 
uh, generally held animosity towards Catholicism and Blacks. I felt this was a significant context to uh, keep in mind while researching the Methodist KKK overlap. Absolutely. Tell me about Reverend Simmons and his visions for a, quote, renewed Klan. Uh, William Simmons was a suspended Methodist minister living in Georgia. He envisioned a renewed Ku Klux Klan in 1950 while he was hospitalized due to injuries suffered in an auto accident. And it seems that the 1915 film Birth of a Nation most probably influenced him. Um, later that year, Simmons and a small group of men established early KKK principles of nativism and white supremacy and climbed to the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia on Thanksgiving Day and lit a cross. Uh, eventually, Simmons was replaced as head of the revised Invisible Empire, and the organization began to spread nationally under a promotion campaign. And the Klan had its own Klan speak, so Klegals, or promoter salesmen, would enter communities, discover local concerns, and then offer a Klan presence as an antidote for those concerning issues. I think you bring up an important point that I think a lot of people miss is that Birth of a Nation really inspires the Klan, that the burning of the cross does not happen until after this film. Right. And I, I certainly learned something from your paper about the Klegals. First of all, it's the most ridiculous sounding thing I, I, I could think of, but I, I didn't realize they had salesmen and that they called them Klegals. Yeah. What about the canon, the clan in Kansas specifically? Um, was it everywhere? Was it just a regional thing? Well, the clan was most visible in the more populous areas of the state, which makes sense, in the eastern and south central areas particularly. Yet it was active to a level throughout the state and small communities. And more clans speak here. There were claverns or chapters in nearly every town in the state. Claverns, another ridiculous term. <laughs> So these attempts to get the Klan into Kansas, was that homegrown or were these outside influences from other states? Well, I'd say there was probably fertile ground for it in the state, but with a Klan regional office in Kansas City, Missouri, the organization just hopped the state line into Kansas. And then also the KKK moved into the southeastern, south central parts of Kansas uh, particularly from Arkansas and Oklahoma. They uh, engaged particularly in areas of uh, mining and coal production, where many immigrants were active as laborers, and immigrants were considered in clan principles as an undesirable foreign element. Did clan members show up at church services? Uh, yes, they did. Interestingly, this was kind of their modus operandi. Clan uh, members robed and masked and other times just robed were reported as walking unannounced into church services and usually Methodist services in the instances I found. Uh, the 
KKK members often handed the minister a cash donation in order to generate goodwill towards the Klan. Um, some ministers responded graciously towards the visitors and allowed them to speak their intentions and to promote their Klan principles. However, other ministers refused the donations, citing the group had concealed their identities, and that was an issue for them. That seems wild to me that you could just be sitting in a church service and then here comes the Klan. Yes, there it's the reports were that the hush, of course, fell over the congregation. <laughs> I can just imagine that would be a pretty startling event. You also talked about some interesting interactions with a hospital in Wichita. So tell me about that. In November of 1922, Wichita's Wesley Hospital, which was or may still be a Methodist institution, announced a large debt reduction campaign. On November 18th, which apparently was a prearranged appointment, uh, Klan members arrived at the hospital, met with the hospital board chair, WMG House, and some other trustees. The Klan members expanded, excuse me, expanded on their principles and then handed Chair House a significant $8,000 plus donation towards reducing the hospital debt. So this event stirred up quite the kerfuffle in Wichita and beyond. Uh, reporting and editorials and newspapers condemned the hospital board for accepting a donation from a secretive and hateful group. Uh, the What Would Jesus Do originator, Dr. Charles Sheldon, was speaking the next day in a church service, and he pointedly denounced the accepted donation. And most interesting is that the Wesley Hospital board chair house was in the service. Um, some additional information on this event and what was most interesting to me was that the following year in 1923, the secretary of the Wichita district reported to the annual session of the Southwest Kansas Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church, a summary of this successful Wesley Hospital fundraiser, which in his estimation was, quote, one of the most remarkable ever conducted in the history of our conference, unquote. And no mention of the Klan donation or of the surrounding controversy was made in his report. I can imagine that that might have stirred some some more controversy if they mentioned the generous donation of the Klan. Sure. <laughs> um, I know you used a lot of newspapers in your research. What kind of coverage is there out there about the Klan and the Methodists in Kansas? Well, uh as I've kind of alluded to, there was positive and negative coverage in the press on the Klan. And I suggest mostly influenced by the editor-owner point of view. Also, the Klan had their own publications, the Jayhawker, for example. And another instance, Henry Allen, who was anti-Klan and concurrently governor of Kansas, editor-owner of the Wichita Beacon newspaper, 
roundly criticized the Wesley Hospital for its acceptance of the Klan donation. I really found the newspaper coverage so fascinating. Uh, pieces about the Klan meetings were often nestled next to recipes for cooking old hams <laughs> or between community event announcements. The uh, To me, the KKK pieces just often seem to be reports of normal town activities. And just another bit I'd like to mention is that I found plan uh, advertisements expounding on their principles and membership application forms in the newspapers. $10 for a membership in the Klan. Again, that's wild to me that you could just be opening up your newspaper and here's a membership application for the Klan. Yes, wild. Yes. So you mentioned in your paper that by the 30s, everything had shifted. The Klan's nearly absent from Kansas. What causes this shift? There were several factors. By 1930, the United States Supreme Court denied a Klan appeal of the Kansas KKK ouster suit. Also, William Allen White, the Emporia Gazette editor, was crisscrossing Kansas at this time during his campaign for governor and made Kansans more aware of the devious and dangerous Klan. Also, there was national press coverage of a trial of an Indiana Klan official who had been accused of raping and murdering a white woman. So this really alarmed KKK members and non-members alike who knew of or remembered violent acts perpetrated by the Klan. Author Tim Reeves likens the members' flight from the organization as them fleeing a burning theater. Also opposed by the Klan, Democrat Al Smith, the Catholic presidential candidate, was defeated by Herbert Hoover, and in 1924, federal legislation limited immigration. So these factors, among others, led to the end of the Klan as an organization by 1930 because it was, in a way, successful. But as Kelly Baker points out in her book, the Klan still exists as a brand. So ultimately, what did you conclude about the relationship between the KKK and the Kansas Methodists in your research? Bottom line, I found the interactions between the two groups blurry and pretty complex, especially with both groups claiming to follow Christian tenets. So finally, I concluded from the sources I accessed that the official Methodist entities in the state did not make a clear denouncement of the Klan or offer guidance to its members and perhaps an enabled extended Klan activity in Kansas. What was the most difficult part about this research? Honestly, to stay within assignment parameters, refraining myself from going down the many rabbit trails. Yes. And then also um, not clearly understanding the Methodist church hierarchy in the state. Um, I attempted to find the whereabouts of uh, some 
locally held ministerial alliance documents, which would have been great information that revealed possibly many church and clan interactions. So that was a bit frustrating. But overall, I think definitely there could be much more research done on this topic. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to take big events and then bring them to a local level and understand more about, you know, the place that you're living. Right. Yes. Was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to talk about today? Well, I'd certainly like to thank a few people. There were several who assisted me. And first, I'd like to thank Dr. Atkins for his encouragement and helpful critiques during the research writing process. Also, I want to thank our author, Tim Reeves. He graciously emailed back and forth with me during the semester, giving feedback. And then um, Roger Heineken, who's considered the historian of Emporia, connected me with the Methodist Church archives, which are housed at Baker University. And certainly thanks to Melinda Rinkers, the Baker U archivist. She was very helpful. Archivists are always awesome. I have yet to meet an unhelpful archivist. They're just wonderful people who can give us access to all of this wealth of knowledge. Right. Best friend of the researcher, for sure. And it's so awesome that you got a response back and forth with an author uh, that, you know, most authors just love to talk about their work and research and are so, so helpful to students. And you never know. Right. I was really pleased to get the connection with him. So and he was great, great help. What are you looking forward to in the spring semester? I am taking my final foreign language hours for my Bachelor of Arts requirement. It, I'm taking German, which um, pretty it overlaps with my interest in Kansas history. Definitely. And also, yeah. And also because um, I'm taking your second World War class professor. So I'm definitely excited about your class and interested to see how the German language learning may prove to be an interesting overlap with uh, World War II. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, always nice when you can have some overlap between your classes and make them both more meaningful in that way. Yes. So I know you're pretty early on in the process. This is your second semester at Fort Hayes, but what are your plans for your degree? I want to do something in the public history area. And I always pitch out that I had the lofty idea of being a research assistant for Ken Burns Documentary Films Company. So, Mr. Burns, if you're listening, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I was just watching a Ken Burns documentary (laughs) today. That would be awesome to see your name up at the bottom of those as a research assistant. That would be the utmost. Uh, But definitely research and writing for publication and uh, for maybe developing exhibits at museums and historical sites. Well, Susan, thank you so much for visiting with me today. Sure, you're welcome. I will post a selected bibliography of sources from Susan's research at victoryhistory.com. There you can subscribe by email to get notifications on episodes. And I want to give a special shout out to Nathan Weiss, who is an FHSU music composition major who composed our theme music. If you're interested in pursuing a degree in history at FHSU on campus or online, 
visit www.fhsu.edu history to learn more. Thanks for listening.